Um, what we're going to continue talking about tonight, what we've been talking about all semester, it's the, is that up in my face again, Charlie? I'll, just, I'll stand over here to the side. Um, it's the story of Scripture. And what we've been saying, what we've been talking about every week, is that the Bible from beginning to end is one big story. And it's a love story, really. It's about a king who creates a good world, and then uh, mankind, as part of that creation, falls into sin. But the king doesn't stay in heaven far removed. He brings about, initiates this process of redemption. Well, this is the second week now that we've been talking about redemption. A couple weeks back when we met, we talked about how Jesus' life, what he actually came and did on this earth, was part and parcel of our redemption, for those in here who are Christians. That Jesus' life, his doing all things right, being perfect, we had to have that in order to be redeemed. Because God requires righteousness um, to come before him. So that was part of what Jesus did. Tonight, though, we're kind of going into a second part. So there's Jesus' life. But now we're going to talk about Jesus' death. What about Jesus, uh, this man 2,000 years ago who hung on a cross, what about that very act is part of our redemption? How does that save us? What are the pieces involved there that actually redeem us before God, that pay for our freedom from sin? And so there's... Uh, a few things we're going to look at tonight. Um, but we're going to read this first from Mark, 7, uh, begin, Mark 15, beginning of verse 17. Um, and there's, uh, I don't know, 20 verses here or so, but they go pretty quickly. So um, let's just look there, and then we'll pray and see um, what Jesus did to redeem us. And this is God's holy and infallible, uh, inerrant word. It says, And they clothed him, talking about Jesus, in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, 
and of Joseph and of Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray quickly before we look at this. God, this is uh, a passage that most likely is familiar to many of us. We've grown up in the church or grown up around Christian things. That of Jesus hanging on a cross and saying these things. But I pray that as we read something familiar, you would do something unfamiliar perhaps to some of us. And that is to stir our hearts anew. That we might see the beauty of the gospel. We might see the beauty of this bloody man hanging on a cross. And that through it we might be changed. Would you do that? Would you come and do that in us right now? We pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, several years ago, um, the theologian Bono gave this interview on uh, a, a website. I think it was eventually turned into a little book. Um, but he was talking with a guy named, uh, the guy's name is kind of crazy. It's um, Mitchka Asias. Okay. Um, and Mitchka was asking, he was not a Christian. This guy named Mitchka was not a Christian. But he was asking Bono just about different things and things that he did with the Pope and uh, kind of on different stages that he had had around the world, I guess literally stages. Um, but just different settings he had. And he was talking to Bono about this idea of religion. And he said that in becoming a parent, that he had begun to maybe understand something about the nature of religion. Okay, so that's kind of the conversation that hap- happened, or the, that's going on. And Bono responds to him at one point in talking about religion, these things, and says this. He says, you see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or an opposite one. It is clear to me that karma is at the very center and the heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace, to upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies this reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you will, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news, he said, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. You know, as we look at the world that we're in, and as we think about religion uh, just kind of out there, and what people think about religion, uh, Christianity or otherwise, most people think and default into thinking that karma is it. That it is a you get what you deserve. And that what you put out, what you put into it is what you get out of it. You treat others poorly, you're going to get treated poorly. And that's how the God, if there is a God or whatever the system is, that's how he will treat you or respond to you. But Bono's on to something. He says, no, in the Christian story, which is the one he's talking about, he says this thing called grace comes and interrupts that flow. That love interrupts that. And the love that he's talking about, and we'll see it in a little bit more in a minute, is this idea that there was a man who hung on a cross for people. And he's talking about that being the greatest example of love. But what was it about Jesus hanging on that cross that actually saved people? What was it? We're going to talk tonight about things that were torn when Jesus was on that cross. And I would suggest and I would argue tonight that Jesus himself being torn, but not just that. That something else was torn on that cross that changes everything. So let's start. Um, I want to work somewhat quickly through these because there's four of them um, as we talk about uh, how Jesus' death actually starts to reverse the effects of sin in this world. Okay, but the first one I want to talk about is that Jesus was torn in his body. Okay, this is 
no news for most of you. This is why um, here in a lot of churches and different places, people think Christians are bloody people <laughs> because we sing a lot about blood. It's kind of a big deal in the way that Christians think because when Jesus was, went to the cross, having been beaten, wearing a crown of thorns, blood, um, I would imagine streaming down his face, and then up on the cross with spikes through his hands and his feet, pulling downward the blood coming off. It's a bloody thing. His body was torn as he went to the cross and even as he hung on the cross. Verse 17 says he wore a crown of thorns. And verse 19 says the onlookers were striking his head with a reed. Um, John's gospel, which we don't read, we're not reading tonight, he gives so much more detail um, about the, the events that actually led up to him hanging on the cross. And friends, he was not in good shape when he went to the cross. And most of y'all probably remember the Passion movie. People got really mad about how that portrayed Jesus and kind of how gruesome it was. I don't imagine that was overdoing it too much. Um, the Romans were a pretty brutal people, and they would have known how to punish someone. And so there he was. He was torn in his body. But why? Why? Why was Jesus beaten like that? Why was he so bloody? Why would people, even the religious people of that day, want to kill him? What had he done that made them so mad? What was it? Wasn't he just a good person or a good teacher or a prophet? See, the problem with Jesus back then is kind of the same problem with him now, is that he didn't say, I'm just a good teacher, I'm just a prophet, or any of these things. Bono continues in that interview, and the guy asks him and says, Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers. But son of God, isn't that far-fetched? And Bono turns around and says, Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please, just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We've had John the Baptist eating locusts and honey, and we can kind of handle him. But don't say the M word. Don't say you're a Messiah, because, you know, if you keep going around saying you're God, we're going to have to kill you. And he goes, Jesus, no, no. See, I know that you're expecting me to come back with an army and do away with these Romans who have you enslaved. I know that's what you expect me to come back and do. But actually, I am the Messiah. And Bono says, at this point, everyone just kind of starts staring down at their shoes saying, well, uh, oh my God, he's going to keep saying this. <laughs> he's not going to stop. So what you're left with is that either Christ is crazy for claiming to be God, or he actually was the Messiah who the Old Testament and who the religious people, who their scriptures predicted would come. You see, Jesus walked around saying he was God, and people hated him for that. Because in the eyes of the religious people, he wasn't the kind of Messiah, God person that they wanted. He wasn't bringing the kind of relief and release that they wanted. He was, he was saying he was God and that he had the authority to forgive sins. And because he was saying this, people hated him and they beat him and they tore his body to pieces. But friends, this is part of what had to happen for you to be redeemed. Because this is what sin deserves. It deserves punishment. It deserves the fiercest wrath of any person, 
even God himself, is what sin deserves. And so when Jesus hung bloody on that cross, it is actually part of our redemption. You see, um, that is what... That is what we actually want deep down inside to happen in this world. Because we don't want the child rapist to go free, do we? Never. We don't want that. We don't want the husband who abuses his wife or the wife who abuses her husband or her kids to go free. We don't want someone who goes out committing arson to get off. We want sin to be punished. You see, but the problem is is that We can't just have the big sins like that be punished. Because in God's eye, sin is sin. And though sin differs in its its heinousness and how bad and what the effects are, sin is sin and it has to be punished. It's what Scripture says. God is holy and pure and as such, He hates all sin. And as a just God, He says He has to punish that sin. He has to punish it. But Jesus was sinless. So why did he die? If Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, then it would be logical to say, for the wages of not sin is not death. Right? Jesus, he didn't sin, so shouldn't he not die? That's the logic. That is a perfectly good way to look at that. But what happened? Because Jesus died. What's the catch? Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that for our sake, he's speaking to a group of Christians, to a church in Corinth. He said, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, he's saying that God made one person, Jesus Christ, who did not know sin. He was not a sinner. God made him to be sin by putting him up on that cross. He was giving him the just punishment of sin. Okay? He knew no sin, but God made him to be sin. And that those who believe on him, it says that we get Jesus' whole life of righteousness, of sinless perfection, obeying everything that God ever required, everywhere for all time. Christians get that credited to our account. That Jesus gets our sin and he is brutalized for it. But we get his righteousness and we are rewarded for that. Right? Eternal life. You've heard that? Jesus died for your sin. That's what's happening as he hangs on the cross. Isaiah foretold about this Messiah person. He said, by that person's wounds you will be healed. That's what he means. That's what's happening. Um... Many of you walk around to you wondering if God loves you. In some sort of fashion, you wonder that. You ask yourself that. You ask me that. Your questions when we sit down and talk, evidence that you really, on a day-to-day basis, and I'm not saying you, I, I struggle with this too. We walk around saying, God, do you really love me? And if so, why are things not changing? Why am I still struggling with this? Why is my life still going that way and not that way? Why won't this person like me? Why won't... Why do these people like me? I don't want them to like me. Um, whatever it is, we really struggle to believe that God loves us. And I think part of the reason is that we believe this. We believe that love is primarily and first and foremost an emotion and a feeling. We evidence this in the way that we date. We evidence this in the movies uh, that we go to watch. Um, 
and then we rent romantic comedies, which I actually like most of them. Um, so I'm probably standing in some way in that, but I don't know. Um, but we believe that love, first and foremost, is an emotion. But if that's true, let me ask you this question. If you really want some advice on what it means to love someone, let's say you're getting into some sort of relationship, do you go ask the couple who's been uh, married for two months, hey, tell me what it's like to really, like, let's just sit down and talk. What's it like to love somebody? What's it like to love her or love him? They'll have thoughts for you, and they'll probably tell you um, all the wonderful things that have happened in the last two months. Or would you rather sit down with somebody who's been married for 50 years and who has been through, I don't know, raising children, selling houses, losing jobs, uh, thick and thin, committed to one another, stayed together? Do you not think that they would know something more? I'm not saying the first couple would know anything about love, but don't you think that other couple would know something more experientially about love? That they would know after 50 years that love wasn't primarily just an emotion. Because emotions over time, they come and go and they wax and wane and they're up and down. They're all over the place. They're like roller coasters. Y'all know that about yourselves? I know that about myself. Um, but love is it's not primarily and foremost a feeling. It is an action. Okay, And that's why God, um, or Paul tells us through the Holy Spirit in Romans 5.8, that while we were still sinners, not, he didn't wait for us to go get better and to get cleaner. He said, no, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. That God defines love in an action. He says, for God so loved the world, he sent his son in John 3.16. It is an action that substantiates the claim of God's love. And so friends, when you struggle to believe that God loves you, you need only to look back at the cross and see one who is hanging there bloody for you. He would deliver his own son over to be torn and crucified so that our sin might be punished. Okay, so that Jesus' life of goodness might be transferred to us. He saves us partly by being torn in the body, but that's not it. In verse 24, if you look down, it says that his clothes were torn for us as well. What does this mean? Verse 24 says, And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. Seemingly at random, um, people are down there at his feast, at his feet, rolling the dice so they could divide his garment, his clothes, and take them from him. Now, if you were a good little Jew in that day, you wouldn't have done this. Why? Well, Psalm 22 said this. It said, it was talking about the Messiah, it said, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, do you think those people sitting there rolling dice or whatever they're doing for Jesus' clothes, do, they, do you think they knew they were part of killing the Messiah? Do you like, think they knew they were in the action? They should have had a quiet time that morning. They would have known. Um, I'm guessing they didn't. They didn't know that they were like, at the feet of God incarnate. They wouldn't have done that. But this verse, so it fulfills prophecy, yes. And the Bible's full of the New Testament's full of Jesus fulfilling all sorts of prophecy. But there's more going on. There's more going on here. It would be so shaming, wouldn't it? So shaming to hang in front of anybody, to stand in front of anybody in utter sheer nakedness. Y'all, this is the stuff of nightmares. <laughs> have y'all ever had the one where you're the only one in the room with no clothes on? I have. It's really weird. It's really scary. It's really embarrassing. And there he was, paraded between heaven and earth with nothing on. 
Extremely shaming. Extremely embarrassing. Shameful. And it was to him too. Look, his nakedness is a picture of the shame that sin itself brings. If you remember back to uh, the garden, when Adam and Eve, when they first sinned, what did they do? They realized they were naked. And they were ashamed. And they ran and hid from each other. And even from God Himself. Because that's what sin does. That's why um, you don't just go look at porn and then go tell everybody. Right? It's not like the most fun thing to talk to people about. Oh yeah, by the way, I was up till three last night looking at porn for four hours. Or girls, it's, it's not um, when you go shopping and spend $400 and you know you actually don't need those clothes. It's why you go tell people you, bought, you spent $70. Sorry, I know that happens. I've done it too. Um, it's embarrassing though. When we sin and, and when our sin takes all sorts of faces. And it's shaming. And we know it. And so we create a, a world of lies around us to try to hide from that. To try to run away from that shame and from those secrets. Because we think if we ever tell people that, they won't want to be around us. They won't actually love us anymore. They'll run the other way. But Jesus hung on the cross and He took on nakedness for you. And this is what this means. It means that if He was going to pay for your sin in full, He had to fully experience your sin. If Jesus was going to pay for your sin fully, if when He was at the end going to say, it is finished, and friends, He had to experience the full weight of what sin brings. And so He hung up there in shame, naked, before the whole world to see. And what does that mean for us 2,000 years later? It means that we no longer have to run and hide from God and from others when we sin. And I know that you're thinking, yeah, right, Brent. Uh, every time I sin, I want to go hide. I know. I know that's what it feels like. Because it's what it feels like for me too. But it means that we don't have to. It means that we can actually approach God with confidence through what Jesus has done. Through the nature of His hanging there naked. It means that we can approach God with confidence knowing that He is a God that understands our shame. Because we're praying to Jesus Himself who's seated at the right hand of the Father. We're praying to Him and He understands our shame. And though we come in our insecurity in that shame, there is one in heaven who is fully secure in who He was and who is able to cancel that shame. In His confidence and out of His security, out of his security He willingly took our shame upon Himself. He did that for you. That's part of what it means that your sin was redeemed when He hung on the cross. And that means that instead of running from God fearful of what He'll think about what you've just done or what I've just done, rather than running the other way in embarrassment and wanting to hide from God, friends, that means that if you're in Christ, you can run to God. And you can go to Him as a Father who loves His children, who loves you, and who wants to hear from you, who wants to understand you, who wants to be near to you and not to be repelled from you. Friends, He's no longer mad at you if you're in Christ. He loves you. And He no longer wants to punish you. How could He? He's already punished your sin. 
God would be unjust if he made you pay for it again. Because he's already done that to Jesus. So friends, realize this about God. It is the gospel. It's the good news that he is not keeping us far away. What about the guilt, okay? What about the guilt that you inevitably feel when you do something? Because there is such thing as a right guilt when the Holy Spirit is saying, yes, you can't keep doing this. This is not good for you. So there's a right guilt, but there's also a wrong guilt. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. What he's saying is that grief or sorrow that's from God is a grief and a sorrow that's unto life. It's unto salvation. The word there um, is also um, to restoration, uh, uh, preservation, or deliverance. That when we feel the guilt after sinning, it is meant to drive us to repent and to go to God and say, I did this again. Not in shame, without regret, it says. Right? So, I mean, we regret that we do it, but we don't have to go to Him saying, oh, I'm so scared to be here. I regret coming into your presence, God. No, because there's a godly grief that produces life. But there's a different kind of grief and sorrow present here. It's put in contrast to this, and it says it's the one that works death. The work there um, that says produces is work. And that's what we know to be our experience, right? That when there's a sin of something that comes from the world, when we're unnecessarily shamed by something, or when our parents are unnecessarily telling us you're not good enough, or when we hear that from others or from whoever, that produces death in us. It is not unto life. There is nothing good that comes of that except lots and lots of counseling and ridiculous bills uh, for seeing therapists because that stuff is harmful. It is, it is death in and of itself when this kind of grief comes. But that's not right. That's not the kind of guilt uh, that is from God and the, and the grief and the sorrow that comes from God. To put it very simply, to ask it this way, does the grief you experience in life lead to your own shame and disappointment in yourself? Does the grief that you experience day in and day out lead to shame and disappointment about who you are and what you've done? In hiding and secluding from others? Or does it lead to a place of thankfulness? In hiding in what God has done for you? In hiding in the nearness that God has exhibited through His Son hanging on a cross? And you can run to Him and to others and bear your soul for some of you for the first time and finally be known to be accepted by God and by others even in the midst of your sin. Friends, that's the Gospel. That's what Jesus is calling us to. As a community and as the church around the world, He says you are to be a place where people can come. We aren't a, people of, we aren't a place of put-together people. We're a hospital full of broken sinners who need to be reminded the gospel. We need to tell it to each other every day. We need to believe it for ourselves. When Jesus' clothes were torn, He took a place of public shame and estrangement so that you might be clothed and put in a place of love and acceptance. Okay, so Jesus' body was torn. His clothes were torn. And the last two are quicker. Thirdly, I want us to see that Jesus was torn from the presence of God Himself so that we might not have to be. Okay, he was torn from the very presence of God. Look at verse 33 and 34. It says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This, ver- which, this verse is also a quote from Psalm 22. can be kind of difficult to work through. 
Because how is it that Jesus himself being God is forsaken by God? Like, does, he, does God stop being God or does Jesus stop being... So it's difficult. There's a lot of moving pieces here. And so um, we're going to go listen to a guy from the 11th century. Help us. That's always fun. Um, a guy named Anselm wrote this book, this little pamphlet thing called Why Did God Become Man? He's asking the question, why did God do this? <clears throat> okay, follow me and then I'll give an illustration. So I'm going to state it in kind of a complicated way and then hopefully make it less complicated. He said, sin against God is an infinite sin. Okay, sin against God is an infinite sin. Greatness he kind of defines that. He says, the greatness of sin is determined by the person against whom one sins. So if you sin against me, it's kind of, a, I mean, you know, it's whatever. You might hurt my feelings or whatever. But if you sin against God, that's a little different. Because I'm not God. I can't punish your sin like that. But God is God. And he punished a sin. He is holy. And so it says, the greatness of sin is determined by the person against whom one sins. Thus, sins against the holy God are measured by his infinite greatness. And therefore are infinite in their degree. So when you sin against an infinite God, you have offended an infinite party. So what does that sin deserve? Infinite punishment. He'll go on to say that. He said man is finite. And thus we can't atone for ourselves. Okay, if God is infinite and we're finite and we sin against him, we can't do anything to make that up. We're like a little kid trying to jump up and grab the balloon. We can't do it. We can't jump high enough. Because it's a whole different kind of person altogether. We've offended him. And so we're, we're finite. We can't do that. It says the pains of hell are then infinite, are then infinite, everlasting. Finite beings must suffer under the weight of infinite guilt. And friends, that's what Jesus is experiencing up on the cross, is an infinite forsakenness by God. He says, an infinite person, however, who infinitely suffers, can take away sin from man by the very infinitude of the worth of his sufferings. Christ was the Lamb worthy to open the scrolls. And as a perfect man, Christ takes man's side. He comes down here. But continuing to be God, he is infinite in his divinity. And his sacrifice is thus efficacious. Okay. By way of illustration, here's what happened. I, I gave this one last fall. I'm going to give it again because it was awesome. Um... And I made it up. Uh, I'm just kidding. That's not that awesome. Um, but here's what happens. If you go to Walmart with your roommate and you buy a stack of dishes, okay, and you spend $6.99 for 20 plates, you go home and you're excited you have these new dishes, but the first time you put your second half of your Chipotle burrito in the microwave and take it out and it's too hot, you drop your plate on your floor and it breaks. How big of a deal is that? Eh, $7 divided by 20. Um, quick math, anybody? 33 cents of, of sin. <laughs> Not a huge deal. However, um, this is by way of, of approximation. If you go to the Queen's Castle in London, she's kind of the biggest rock star I can think of, bigger than our president, I think. Um, if you go to the Queen's Castle, you're going through the buffet line, because remember, that's what queens have. They have buffets. You're going through the buffet line, and you have this hand-thrown ceramic plate from the third Chinese dynasty. That's what you're about to eat your macaroni and cheese on. You go back to the table... You, tr you trip on the oriental rug and you drop the plate on the ground and it breaks. How do you repay that? You can't. It's one of a kind. It's from the third Chinese dynasty. They don't make this stuff up anymore. 
How do you repay it? You can't. The, the debt you have incurred is greater than what you can pay for. Jesus, therefore, being infinite God Himself, is the only one that could atone for your sins. He's the only way that God could actually be pleased with us. Because God is an infinite God. Jesus is an infinite God and also man pays that penalty. He bridges the gap. He closes the canyon. He does whatever, whatever diagram you want to draw. That's what Jesus does. Because He's an infinite God Himself and He does that. And as He hung on the cross, the divine nature of who Jesus is gives way to His humanity. To his weakness so far as was necessary for our salvation. Jesus becomes flesh so that we might be redeemed. But he remains divine and that's a mystery. If you can explain it, talk to me after class. I do not know. Um, I am your teacher. <laughs> Calvin, uh, John Calvin, who's a guy in the 16th century uh, pastor and theologian said this. said, and certainly this was his chief conflict. That in his anguish, he was so far from being soothed by the assistance or favor of his father, talking about Jesus, that he felt himself to be in some measure estranged from him. Estranged from him. For not only did he offer his body as, as the price of our reconciliation with God, but in his soul, he also bore the punishment for our sin. That he was forsaken. For in order that Christ might satisfy for us, it was necessary that he should be placed as a guilty person on that cross. And Christ appears on that cross before the judgment seat of God, hearing a guilty verdict pronounced over him for your sin. That God looks at him and says, for the sin of these people, of my people now in the past and forevermore, Jesus, you are guilty. I am forsaking you. And Jesus feels it. He knows it. He experiences estrangement from God. Friends, if you're Christian or not tonight, you have not experienced that kind of estrangement. Because hell has not come yet. Jesus Christ experienced hell on the cross for you. For you. You don't know what it's like to be away from God's hand yet. He is graciously upholding even the non-Christians right now in this world. He is. And you, if your faith is in Christ, by the very nature of His being forsaken, are accepted and approved before God. You couldn't do it. You can't go to Him and say, Oh, but God, look at me. Look at how many good things I've done. Remember when I helped that lady across the street? Or remember that one day when I read my Bible for three hours? That was sweet, wasn't it? Or God, remember when I did, um, when I fasted? That was neat. I was hungry, but that was really neat. Um, <clears throat> God, won't you think I'm pretty special when I go around and love people really well? And yet, that's the kind of things that people try to do to appease God, as if, as if He were a God who, who rewards based, on the, grace of, or based on, on the basis of karma. He says, yeah, you get what you deserve. Come on in. That's great. But he says, no, because you're finite. You've offended an infinite God. You can't appease Him by doing good. But Jesus could appease him because he was infinite God himself and he bled and hung on the cross for you. Lastly, one more thing. What else is torn in this passage? Let's look at verse 37 and 38. It says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
Okay, occasionally when I'm working around the house and I need uh, a rag or something, I'll go try to find my oldest, nastiest shirt and tear it um, so I can make rags out of it. I will try to tear it sometimes. Um, Sometimes it doesn't work, right? Have you ever tried to just tear a shirt? Not even go for the seams. I'm talking straight up, like right in the middle, tear it. It's hard. Even my junkiest, nastiest, oldest undershirts are still hard. The curtain in the temple was four inches thick. And when Jesus died, it was torn in half. Why and how? How God did it. <laughs> Good answer. Um, God came and tore the temple, or tore the curtain in the temple. Why? Well, what, it, what, what was behind the curtain was the Holy of Holies that only one person could enter once a year. The high priest could go back there to atone for sin once a year. And if he or anyone else went back there ever, they would die instantly. God would kill them. Why? Because God's mean. No. Um, (laughs) Because God is holy. Because God is holy. And friends, we don't get to come to God like we want. We come to Him on His conditions and on His terms. And he said, this is the way it's going to happen. The, holy, the high priest once a year will come in here and he will do his deed and he will uh, represent me before you, represent you before me, and then he'll go out. But when Jesus hung on the cross, that curtain was torn in two as if to say what? There's nothing separating me from you. The final sacrifice has been made. The last drop of blood has been shed. You see my son Jesus down there? That's it. The sacrificial sacrificial system's done. No more high priest. That Jesus down there, he was your final high priest. He was what everything in the Old Testament pointed forward to. He was what all the sacrifices, all the blood, all of the priests, everything. He is hanging on that cross. And I'm ashamed that you didn't, I'm amazed that you didn't see this in your scriptures. But friends, the religious people didn't see it. But as if to say, I'm done with the way that that I set up with y'all. I am coming to be with you personally in the person of Jesus. And I have paid it all. There's no more sacrifices to be done. There's nothing more you can do to be near me. It's what God is saying when He tears the curtain. I have done it all. And why in the other Gospels then does Jesus at the end of it, right uh, right before He breathes His last, what does He say? God, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in another account, he says, it is finished. And he wasn't just talking about his life. He was saying, there is now nothing more to be done to come to God. You come to him now. Through the temple, or through the curtain being torn. I'm going to close by way of this illustration. Um, <clears throat> about six years ago, I heard Ricky Jones, who's now the pastor here in Tulsa, um, at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Uh, Ricky told a story um, about... Um, his son, at that time he was talking about Brundage, which is his oldest. Um, he was talking about uh, Brundage one day, uh, Ricky had gotten home from work, and he was talking to, um, to Bianca, and Bianca said, you know, Brundage has done this today, he's been bad in these ways, you need to punish him. And um, Ricky said, okay. So he got Brundage, and, and after six years, I've missed some details, but this is the gist of what happens. He gets Brundage, and they get in the car, and they go for a ride. He said, Brundage, come on, let's go. And Brundage, knowing that he had done something wrong that day, goes and is fearful of what's going to happen. And they get in the car, and Ricky's talking to Brundage, kind of about his day. 
Hey, Brian, tell me about your day. How was it? Well, yeah, I did this. We did this. Certainly probably hiding or at least trying to mask some of the bad stuff that he had done. And Ricky pulls up to the ice cream store. Certainly, Brundage would have been confused. And they got out, and they went in, and Ricky said, Brundage, order whatever you want. What? Order whatever you want, Brundage. So he does, and he orders whatever they want, and they go and sit down. And Ricky says, Brundage, what, what did you do today? And he muttered some sort of confession. He said, Brundage... What does God do when you do things like that? How does that make God feel? He said, probably not great. He said, Brunish, what does God give you? And he sat there. And Ricky said, Brunish, in Jesus, God gives you ice cream. Your sin deserves punishment today. You deserve for me to come home and to wear you out. And to spank your little butt all day long. But friends, Brundage, I want to show you grace today. I want to show you how God treats us through what his son went through on the cross. You see, Jesus took the punishment for you, Brundage. And God gives you reward. He gives you eternal life. He gives you the good life. Friends, Jesus' body was torn. His clothes were torn. He was torn from the presence of God in heaven. The curtain was torn so that you might come into His presence. Have you done that? Do you do that now? How do you approach God? Is it with fear and trepidation? Or is it, as a, is it to a Father who has willingly taken you to the ice cream store of life and said, you know what, this is not what you deserve. But that is the grace of the Gospel. That is the story of Scripture is that in Jesus we get what we don't deserve. And He got what we deserve. Let's pray. God, we thank You that that is the story of Scripture, and we pray that we would believe it by Your Spirit. Enable us now to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.